In her new book, South to America, Imani Perry dives into the heart of the changing same of the American South. We talk a lot about the ways the South has progressed in the last 60 years. But as politicians across the South, and across the country for that matter, are attacking voting rights, LGBT youth, especially trans children, and are working to erase black history from textbooks, it does feel like we may be stuck in a changing same. Today on The Reckon Interview, we speak with Dr. Imani Perry about her new book. And folks, this is the best book about the South I've read in a long time. Possibly the best book about the South I've ever read. It fits in a long tradition like W.J. Cash's The Mind of the South, Albert Murray's South to a Very Old Place, V.O. Key's Southern Politics and State and Nation, and W.E.B. Du Bois' Black Reconstruction in America as books that unlock a deeper understanding of the country through an expansive analysis of the South. Dr. Perry was born in Birmingham, and most of her family remains in Alabama, but she spent much of her life living in Chicago and the Northeast. She's currently a professor of African American Studies at Princeton University. And in this book, she approaches the South as both an insider and an outsider. An exile is what she calls herself. And it's a framing that allows her to upend so many assumptions that we have about the South. Assumptions that we hold about ourselves, or assumptions that the rest of the world has about us. Her South is a big South. It's a place filled with multiple Souths. One that stretches from West Virginia to the Bahamas and even beyond. She finds aspects of the South on the campus of Princeton. I think I highlighted something on almost every page of this book, and I could have spoken with her about it for hours. So I think at this point it's best to just dive right in and go south to America with Imani Perry on this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Okay, Imani Perry, welcome to The Reckon Interview. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk about your book, South to America. It is perhaps the best book I've ever read on the South. There is a dizzying number of ideas in here. As I was preparing for this interview, I was looking back at my notes, and I think I've highlighted something on every single page. So first of all, just thank you for writing this. That's an honor to hear. But I actually want to start off with talking about something you wrote in your last book, Breathe, A Letter to My Sons. It's a line that stuck in my head, I think, for the last three years, really. And you talk about You know, wanting your children to understand that even though they're raised in the Northeast, they have an ancestral home in Alabama and the South. And that's an idea that you work through in this book, South to America. Also, can you describe what you mean by the South as your ancestral home? One of the things that I often find myself talking about because I've spent most of my life in the Northeast is that I don't come from a great migration North family. My family is overwhelmingly in Alabama and that is where I was born and that's home. And as you know, in a kind of organic way, as I raised my children, that in some ways is a home for them too. You know, they have been going there multiple times a year before COVID. And so it's a place where we are rooted, where we feel like we belong, that is where the family home is. And I think that's, and it's so much a part of our identity. And there's a story, my younger son, he was little, he, he came home from school one day and said, my teacher has, calls her grandmother Mima too. That's what they call my mother. He, my teacher calls her grandmother Mima too. And her Mima's from Alabama. And I said, I said, oh, did you tell her that your family is also from Alabama? She said, I didn't want to brag. That notion of like, it was important for me to share that with my children, a sense of pride. And your family has been in the South and in America since before the revolution. And there's a very powerful part of your book, you know, early on when you're in Maryland and you're trying to trace the roots of, I guess, your earliest ancestor, earliest known ancestor, 
in the United States, what would become the United States. You can't even get her proper name right. Talk about that experience, you know, looking for her legacy. Right. So, you know, it's so interesting because there's, we talk about the wall of 1870 and African-American genealogy, right? So that before 1870, it's very hard to find people. Although I have found some folks in the, in the course, but through wills, right? So slave registers that don't have names, but wills often do. But I found this woman who in one document says she was born in 1769 and another 1780. In one document, it says that she was, her name was Easter and another Esther. And then I found a record of a woman with the name of the man who I think owned her and listed as a runaway. They call her Easter, but her real name is Stace. I'm so moved about the idea that she was a runaway and insisted upon her actual name as opposed to how she was called. And it seems to me such a potent statement about, you know, what it meant to be to be black in the early, you know, in the early republic. There's an indeterminacy, but I want to sit in the book with the meaning of that indeterminacy, right? To not sort of be fo- focused on necessarily finding the information, but thinking about what does it mean? What did it mean for this woman to be a laborer who came of age as this nation was being born and not to be contemplated as part of its political community, but also part of the body of people who were essential to its development, right? And that to me seems to be, like that's a kind of undercurrent through the book, right? The mean to be all the people that were not considered, whether because of being enslaved or because of being poor laborers or because of being indigenous and pushed out that those who weren't considered are not just historically in many ways the backbone of the nation, but also a significant part of the South. Well, and you talk about the Black Belt. It may be the longest chapter of your book. And your family, as far as you know, never had any roots in the Black Belt. But so much of American culture has roots in the Black Belt. And, And what I thought was particularly interesting, even kind of the northern urban civil rights movements and freedom rights movements uh, under Elijah Muhammad had roots in the Black Belt because he grew up in Georgia and Stokely Carmichael's work in Lowndes County before, you know, the the Black Panther movement in Oakland. And so, you know, talk about that region and why you were so intent on exploring it, despite not having necessarily the personal connection to it. Yeah, because, well, so this is what the Black Belt is in the lore of the nation, what we mean when we say the South, right? And it is because it is this place of incredible abundance and wealth production and violent domination of people, Black people, right? And that's the core, you know, as we tell the story, the story is told, you know, over and over again about the Great Migration. That is primarily a story of the movement from the Black Belt to Northern cities. But it's also actually, I think importantly, was a movement of white Southerners to Northern cities, even in even greater numbers. And I am interested in it because it is a place of so much imagination as well as suffering, right? And so, I mean, the American music, right? That's the heartbeat of it is in the Black Belt and it's blues and, and gospel is origin point, spirituals, blues, and so much of the imagination for freedom struggles come out of there. And so, I really think that there's something very profound about both sort of what came out of the suffering there. And I also want to, part of what I wanted to do with the Black Belt chapter is think about how much 
people from other Souths, as it were, from other parts of the South, might not understand it. And I, you know, Richard Wright was a, was the figure for me for this, but Elijah Muhammad is another one too, right? Both are people who are decried for in different ways for their politics. I think there's something about that origin point and what they witnessed, right? Elijah Muhammad witnessing all of these lynchings in his youth, right? There's something about that that we have to understand to understand how they got where they were politically. For me, as someone who's a scholar of African-American studies, is an opportunity to rethink this, the official story in our discipline, right? Even as young as it is, which often pushes aside, I think, a lot of the the wisdom, genius, beauty, but also the voices that came out of that region. When you, you have a very big tent for the South in your book, uh, you know, you start in West Virginia, you go to Maryland, and I love it because I'm always one to go to bat for, you know, uh, the South being much bigger than Alabama, South Carolina, Tennessee. Um, and, you know, it's interesting the way that you frame the South as, I guess, the gateway to the Caribbean and, and the greater Black diaspora, not just, you know, Black Americans, but the number of Black leaders in, in Africa who were trained in HBCUs and, you know, the way that the music of the South kind of poured out and, and, and formed the rest of the world, whether it's jazz and in France or, or things like that. And so how did you go about setting your parameters for what the South would be? And how did it change in the course of reporting this book? I will be completely honest. I was such a deep South bigot, frankly. Like I lived in Maryland and I, it never occurred to me to think of it as the South when I lived there. So one, it was my ancestor and finding out that she had been born in Maryland and being like, oh, and there was something about, I thought the genealogical journey was going to take me, you know, I thought I was going to find a document that said born in Africa, right? And instead I found one born in Maryland. Her parents were born in Maryland, right? Which is, you know, so goes back even further. So this sense of, and I'm like, okay, of course, I'm a student of history. I know that the deep South was only settled at the beginning of the 19th century, really. So, you know, this, the part of the deep South that I think of, right? Of course, South Carolina and Georgia earlier, but it was an emotional challenge, right? So it was sort of, for me, it was a conversion of what I knew intellectually, to an understanding that the South is actually was something that was made over the course of history and took different iterations because of the different geographies. So recently, because, you know, of the power and beauty of the 1619 Project, there's been a recentering of U.S. history in the South. But then I was also like, but what we could talk about 1520, because when the various European empires were like trying to settle in the Caribbean South, it's one region, right? And they're all moving and the borders are shifting and the borders are shifting and the movement is happening is because people are trying to figure out how to harness this incredible abundance, right? This landscape that is so beautiful, but also they want to produce wealth out of it. And so it was like, it was learning a kind of the geography, the economic development, the people moving in and out that actually guided where I went. I started out with these atlases. I got old-fashioned atlases and I just looked at the land formations and try and cross-reference them with histories and and tried to sort of be expansive. I got to a much bigger south than I, where I began. 
you talked about the South being something that was created over time. It has also been a place where I guess primarily Northern white people have created the South as kind of a repository for America's collective demons and a place where we can point to for all of the blame, despite, you know, it being an American problem from the very beginning. Yeah, because the South did the dirty work because of the geography, right? The land could yield a lot. So, but if we tell the story of Wall Street, right? We tell the story of Lehman Brothers or J.P. Morgan. That's about the exploitation of the unfree labor of Black people, right? If we tell the story of, you know, the Revolutionary War debt, why D.C. is in the South, right? I mean, we sort of, that's a complicated thing that I try to, you know, talk about, but the South was essential for paying off the Revolutionary War debt. We talk about what happened in the War of 1812, all these. And so, it's just to say, oh, that's where that bad stuff happened down there is to not understand or not want to grapple with the fact that so much of the abundance of this nation required the violence of the South to function. And then there's so that it, there's a kind of hypocrisy there to say, OK, well, that's, you know, we to take advantage of this for the whole nation and then say what well, we're dissociating from those people. And not only that. But that region is backwards, even though that's been the vanguard of every development in U.S. history, right, from, you know, oil, coal, I mean, all of these <laughs> industries, right? And so, and even, you know, now we think about, you know, the, the Walmartification of the world, right? It's not incidental that Walmart starts in the South. It's not incidental that Amazon was created by a Southerner. Like, there are these, these traditions about how working people are treated that shape the landscape even today. So, but I want to say something else, which I did explicitly in the book, but it's also the case that Black Northerners have a characterization of the South that quite disturbing or upsetting, right? I have friends who will say, well, I'd never go down South. And they forget, I think often, that the majority of Black people who have always lived in the South in the history of this country, but also because the South is where HBCUs are, it has been the site of so much development and opportunity for Black Americans. So it's almost as though this characterization also distorts very basic things about Black history. Yeah, you write about how freedom movement in the South was always rooted in deep study and learning and things like that. And, you know, the, the narrative that we like to tell is just, it was a tired seamstress who just stood up on a bus one day and, and that, you know, there wasn't just a legacy of education that was tied into that movement. And it's also interesting, you know, you, you write about Princeton where you teach, you know, as an extension, I guess, of, of some of the South. Um, and then I'm also thinking of Pennsylvania, you know, the state where you now live. There's that James Carville quote that's always Pennsylvania is Philadelphia and Pittsburgh with Alabama in between. But even Comments like that, you know, discount the urban South, which you write about in the chapter about Baltimore and Annapolis and, of course, in Atlanta and, and Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, you know, were, were populated by black Southerners moving north. And so, I, you know, I'm curious about your thoughts on, on that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, part of the reason I like Philly is that you can get Jim Dandy grits at Walmart here. <laughs> And you can actually go to a restaurant and get good grits. There's a there's a way in which Southern culture is is intact in certain you know certain aspects in the city that make it for me it feel more livable than it would otherwise be. But yeah, it's it's interesting that South because it comes a stand in for rural, 
becomes a stand-in for country so that then people don't understand that there's an urban South. They don't understand that country doesn't have a complete union with Southernness, right? As Midwesterners, I think, know intuitively. And that kind of, and also that country being depicted as something that is naive as opposed to earnest. You know, I think that that's, a, that's one of the dangers, even that formulation, right? And people in here will call it pencil tucky, right? The Western Pennsylvania is in part based upon the sort of the conservatism of Western Pennsylvania. And I feel like in some ways that is, is connects to the stereotype, right? That there's a certain kind of conservatism around race that is characteristically Southern when in fact it's national for white Americans and the sort of the fiction of the red state, blue state stuff as though the whole country isn't purple. Well, and you talk about, and and I think at this point you were drawing from Albert Murray, who I believe was kind of your template for this book. And he talks about how the so-called black and so-called white people of the United States resemble nobody else in the world so much as they resemble each other. And you break that down in several really interesting ways, whether it's kind of the messy origin of Southern music and figures like Elvis and the Swampers and Muscle Shoals, but also the way that, you know, Black Southerners can be small C conservative and kind of tied up in that, you know, the religious conservative and wanting things to say the same, obviously not on on a lot of racial issues, but, you know, even looking at the 2020 election, men of all races in the South and maybe across the country voted in larger than expected numbers for the Republican Party. And so you know, it's interesting the ways that, that they, Black and white Southerners kind of reflect each other. And the conservatism around Sex and sexuality, I think, is really interesting and one of the things that is a theme in the book, because I want to be clear there that so much of the conservatism is not about eliminating sort of people and practice. It's about creating hierarchies, right? Like ideas of of what's respectable and what's not. And so you and that's old, right, whether it's along the lines of race or sexuality or gender. And so to understand how at the same time as there's a lot of conservatism around gender and gender expression, there's also some of the most robust queer culture in the South that you could find. And that that does cross the lines of race. And and this is the other thing that I think is really important is because Southerners are are poorer and more vulnerable than people in other parts of the country, there's also the reality that there's a reason that there's distrust, there's not an expectation that politicians will do much for people. And I keep, my formulation is sort of like, you know, there's a reason people believe in prayer more than politicians. And I think about this even with the vaccine, and and I am a strong supporter of, of COVID vaccination, but I also think, Well, if we just look at the way meth and lean have devastated Southern communities and pharmaceutical companies have fueled addictions, you get you understand certain kinds of distrust because of a history of people being made vulnerable by these institutions that now they're being told you just got to trust. Right. I'm just trying to kind of get to both, you know, a recognition of the politics in some depth and complexity, but also a sensitivity even when it comes to things about which I may feel very differently. Yeah, there are moments where you place yourself in, you know, kind of the imagined mindset of white men that you're interacting with, whether it's, you know, a cab driver or a man stocking a vending machine. You know, tell me about that exercise. You know, obviously I'm a white man and I'm reading these, these chapters and I'm thinking, is this what's going through people's head every time they meet me? And, you know, I don't want to center myself in it, but I'm curious about that as an exercise. 
I wanted to, as opposed to taking positions, right? So if we do survey, you know, read surveys of like how white men in the South think about things, right? I wanted to actually have encounters that try to move through that information with more delicacy than I certainly do in my sort of more conventional academic work. You know, and it's like, like, so to think about, yeah, you know, this, as if I take the, 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 a man who drove me in the lift to my auntie's house, who had been working, an elderly white man who had told me he worked in the mines for 30 years. And I was thinking and knowing from people who I'm close to the, phys- the physical impact of working in the mines and then thinking about, so there's all this physical vulnerability and now he's driving around doing ride sharing and our relative positions. And he is of a generation where the odds are good that there was an ideology, like a deep ideology of white supremacy. And he is in many ways in a position more vulnerable than I am at the moment, except when he's not right. Like there's, you know, the sort of, Right. Like economically and trying to be in that moment fully and actually think about it and think about it in the from the perspective also of working class and poor white Southerners who do have a legitimate bone to pick with the society about how hard working they have been and not actually reaping in many ways what has been called the wages of whiteness, right? So whiteness is not actually producing a kind of security in the society and feeling like I know that in many instances, the issue for me is not that there's not a bone to pick, it's just the bone to pick is not with me, right? <laughs> right. And so trying to think and and then and then in the end of that interaction, after sort of going through all of this angst, engagement, you know, the the trained kind of defensive protectiveness that I've had as a Black Southerner to know to be sort of skeptical and on guard, the fact that he wants to make sure that I get into the house before he will drive away, you know, it's that intimacy that exists across the lines of race in the South that is so very true, even with all the other stuff. Well, and I think about, you know, the conversation we're seeing right now about books being pulled from curriculum. And it almost feels inevitable that like your book is going to be pulled from schools in the South. (laughs) And I think about the history that we were denied growing up in Alabama, you and I, but, you know, obviously you talk about Tony Horowitz's book, Confederates in the Attic, and that there are spaces that I can probably go that I wouldn't necessarily be comfortable going, but there are places that I can go as a white Southerner, a white male Southerner that you cannot as a black female Southerner. But there's also, I guess, that intimacy and that connection with with the history of the movement that isn't necessarily, I mean, you grew up in in a movement household. It's not that every black person in Alabama knows those stories. I wish more did. But that education is just completely denied to white and black Southerners these days. And you talk about how kind of limiting and insidious it is to not learn about the relatively few, but still existent white Southerners who were active in the movement at the time, including, I think, a friend of yours who was named Tom. Yeah, I think for me, that's important, too, because that's important for the South, but it's also important for people in other parts of the country. Because on the one hand, yes, there is this sort of this backlash against Black history that's most intense in Southern cities, but it's also the case 
that the other regions get bad education about the South. <laughs> I'm always worried about the convenience of just identifying it as, you know, because I think my guess is that the general public has no idea that there were any white Southerners who were in the civil rights movement and multiple generations of that. Like, I think people know about John Brown and sort of is over. Maybe than Jimmy Carter, right? I mean, as a, as a as a relatively, and I think that that too, right? To understand what that meant is a much to me that's a much more significant sign of courage than the person who comes down from the summer from New York. And so, what does it mean that the only story of valor of white Southerners, I mean, of white people in the movement, is that northerner coming down story, right? Both of your parents were involved in the movement and and your father is a white Jewish man that you write in Alabama might have been more likely to be mistaken for a light skinned black man. Yeah, he's very coily, coarse hair. He did. Yeah, so interesting because he passed away some years ago. But my goodness, do I feel his his presence over my shoulder every day right now. But yeah, was inspired by the movement to move to Alabama and you know, became my, was, is my adoptive father, but really from birth and was the first campaign manager when Arrington won, ran Richard Arrington, who was the first black mayor of Birmingham when, when he ran for city council. And so was really, and taught at an HBCU, Miles College, and then taught at Holy Family High School, which is a black Catholic high school in Birmingham. So both of my parents taught those places. And so yes, was an outside agitator, I think by many accounts and wound up being fired from multiple jobs as a result, but befriended many of his closest friends were white Southerners who were also on the margins in different ways, sexuality, politics, and the like. He had a a community, even though he was an outsider. Coming up after the break, we hear more from Imani Perry about her book, South to America. Hey guys, if you've been listening to this interview and you wanted to jump in with ideas of your own, then you may want to sign up for The Conversation, our weekly newsletter that dives into some of the topics that we raise on the show and other issues in the South. You can sign up for it at ReckonSouth.com slash newsletters. You dedicate more of this book to Alabama than any other state. It's your home state. It's my home state. Uh, And you have this beautiful and very clear-eyed way of describing it as home where you say, you know, we will tell you about the warmth and charm more easily, but you cannot understand what a remarkable grace they are without the other part. Murderous home, sweet home, old home week, home. So tell me about what home means to you. Uh, You know, I I know you split time between Alabama and Chicago and Massachusetts, but tell me about home. You know, I will say it has always been the place where I feel safest. And I want to say it in that way because, you know, I think I was six when Benita Carter was killed in, in Birmingham, Black teenager. And so I don't, you know, I, I can, and my son told me this, you know, you can't romanticize it. And it was really important instruction because there, and I, you know, so nine years after 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, and then when I'm a little girl, this other event and understanding that as part of this larger matrix of violence and exclusion that is a, a terrain that's still being fought. And yet, I felt as though I belonged to a community that had organized itself to nurture my development 
and to kind of impart in me a, a sense of that, both a belief in the beloved community and a belief in my own community and myself. And that felt like that has always been a much more comfortable place for me to rest than whatever, you know, fancy schools I was in when that was the place, Massachusetts was the place, you know, where the slurs were hurled at me and the bottles were hurled at the car. And it wasn't as though I, I wasn't trying to say, when I mentioned that, I'm not trying to say that I think Massachusetts was more racist, although certainly Boston could give any Southern city a run for its money as the most racist in the country. <laughs> more that something had been cultivated in Alabama where there was an understanding once this starts, you know, once this moment of violent confrontation starts, it's not going to pass away easily. There had been enough legacy of fighting and resistance such that there's moments of detente or protective zone. And so, so there's that, but then there's also just the comfort of home. There's the traditions, there's a deep sense of, of the importance of family. There's what it means to have 30 people in a three bedroom house and feel comfortable with one bathroom, right? And what it means to sleep multiple children to a bed. And what is it, you know, those things that are, or, or to have a home you could always return to. Like my mother and her siblings, they would go out and they would come back home. There wasn't a lot of money, but there was always home that you could come to. And that sensibility is very Southern, you know, that you can come on home. Maybe this is my ignorance and my misconceptions and latent prejudices coming out, but your grandmother was able to send 12 children to school. And that does not seem like that could have been a very common story for for Black Southerners in that era. Tell me about your grandmother and how she was able to do that. I mean, she was a brilliant woman. She was incredibly resourceful. She just would figure out how to get things done. She, so she sent these 12 children to college, mostly on her own, though she was married, but she was really the person who facilitated opportunity. And she came from Huntsville, but when it was rural, she came from a family that had financial resources. So they had a big house and lots of acres and they even, they, and she would, my mother, actually not her, my mother would talk about going there and seeing that there were even white sharecroppers who worked the, worked the, the land. She didn't have a lot of formal education, but an incredible sense of dignity and self-regard. And so she just put all of her energy and her, her resources to figuring out how to make things possible for her children and grandchildren. And she was my first primary caretaker. So we were very, very close. I used to, you know, they, <laughs> my mother once said a couple of years ago, she was like, how do you know so much about we called her Madea. How do you know so much about Madea? And my auntie said, you don't remember how Imani used to sit up under her all day, every day? Everything that I do as a scholar, as a writer, as an intellectual owes a direct debt to her, her perspective, her clear-eyed sensibilities. You also describe at least the possibility that a lot of illnesses that you've dealt with throughout your life are a result of growing up in Birmingham and you know the environmental pollution that's endemic in the area, particularly in the area where Black Alabamians live, or you say Alabamans, I guess. So. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was only coming really part-time by the time I was five, but those first couple of years and I, the year I was born, 1972, you know, it was, Birmingham was the, considered the most polluted city in the country. My family, I do these, I have done for years, these family trees of illnesses um, I'm the third generation person who has had lupus, all kind of autoimmune diseases, a great deal of breast cancer, lymphomas, I mean, so much. And I do think that those, the industrial city, 
with very few regulations. When I tell people from other states, even it's so funny because even I've, I've said this to Mississippians when I say, well, you don't have to get your car inspected. And they're like, what? <laughs> like, I mean, just it's real. It's the way I can carry my body, you know. Your grandmother and your parents grew up in the age of the freedom movement. You talked about growing up in the age of the violent backlash to the movement. It feels like we're right now in another period of advancement and backlash. And you kind of settle on this idea of the, the changing same of society. And I was thinking about that last night when we learned that the University of Alabama is going to be attaching the name of authoring Lucy Foster, the first person to desegregate the school, to a building alongside the name of former governor and Klansman, I believe a grand cyclops of the KKK, Bib Graves. And so maybe it's just that wordplay that struck me, but you say any monument is, in a sense, both an icon and a grave, a burial vault in which the messiness of history is often dispensed with for the sake of the imagined community. So can you talk about how you reacted to learning about authoring Lucy's name going on that building and just the way that we are moving through this period of deciding who and who not to honor in Honor Southern Landscapes? This has happened now for decades you know, whether we're talking about what King Lee Day in various places or like that this compromise, but a, but it's a compromise that represents the tension that has never left, right? So I used to talk in my earlier work, I talked a lot about progress and retrenchment. And now I think that that might not be the right language. And it's sort of what I'm reaching for in the book that there's an essential tension that comes from the very beginning of the nation, right? Like, and even before, right? In the colonies, the tension between these ideals of freedom and liberty and the like, and the reality of always being willing on this land since it was settled, right? To move people about, to crush them in order to maintain dominance, right? That tension has never left, and so we find ourselves in these repeated moments when the tension gets heightened, right? Like, so that, you know, so you say, okay, well, you know, we're going to sort of try to open things up. What, well, wait a minute, right? What's the cost of that opening things up? And we're, it's so easy. And this is not, it's really important. It's not exclusively Southern, but the South led the way in doing this because it was the place that, you know, settlement could first happen. Um yeah, but, you know, so, okay, we believe in these principles, but, ah, you know, we do really want to make a lot of money or have a lot of power. And, and I do think that that continues to and it cycle. And it also shapes the way we tell a story. Because if we say we claim these principles, right, but then we don't, then there's this desire to not talk about the way we don't, right? That's the keeping the books out wanting a mythology rather than the truth of history is about not having to confront the truth of what has happened. And so this monument, but so the monuments do often cut off conversation that said, of, you know, of course I want, you know, authoring Lucy to be acknowledged. Right. But I also understand that it's not going to correct that fundamental tension and the only way that the, see, this is part, this is for me, the, if there is a big point, the only way that we get ultimately to a different way of doing things is actually to be completely honest and then think about, have a moral reckoning that isn't just about naming or isn't just about platitudes, right? 
Yeah. And on, along that line, you also talk about, you know, there's this naive hope that if black people and white people just live alongside each other and, and get to know each other and love each other, that it will solve everything. And you, and you talk about how, you know, not always consensually, but black people and white people have been loving each other since, you know, that they arrived on, on the American shores, especially in the South. Right. Especially in the South. Right. I mean, it's, it's absurd if you know anything about Southern history to say these things like if people love each other, or they have children. You know, one of the things I wind up saying when I, you know, in some African-American studies classes, you know, when people talk about the one drop rule, African-Americans are by definition a multiracial people because there's always been interracial intimacy. So like that definition actually tells you a lot about why intimacy isn't actually the resolution to anything, you know. Also, and same thing with this true of the history, you know, Latin American history, frankly. But so then the question is, you know, how do we move from thinking like warm feelings? And I think patriarchy is another is in some ways the best example, right? Like anybody who knows about the history of patriarchy and sexism shouldn't think that love and intimacy resolves oppression. It doesn't. It just doesn't respect a sense of recognition of everyone in your midst, right? That is what we have to get to. It's much more challenging than just warm feelings. There's a part of this book where you write about Walter Benjamin puts forth this idea of two types of storytellers, you know, the keeper of traditions and the ones who journey and kind of bring back stories of distant lands. And you offer up a third, and that's the storyteller of, of the exile. And that's an interesting choice of words because you say exile and not expat. You know, do you see yourself in a form of exile from the South? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I think I chose the word. I wasn't cognizant of it, is, but, you know, I do have always carried a bit of maybe resentment isn't the right word, but a homesickness about being taken out of the South as a child and lived with a sense of homesickness through my coming of age that is not easily resolved. And part of what I write about is that my dad, interestingly, was the one who was just always like, you got to find a way to spend, to go home, to spend a significant amount of time every year. Like you need to be there in the sun. Like he was very insistent. And I think it was because he knew that I needed that kind of sustenance for what I was trying to do in my life. But yeah, I think there's, it was important for me to name in part because there's this assumption I think particularly in Black history, that leaving the South is a kind of escape, is a kind of fugitivity, right? Like that as opposed to a condition of being out and longing for, um, which actually I think is quite true for many, many people. And that's part of this, why the reverse migration is happening, frankly. And we've talked a lot about a lot of the serious topics that you cover in this book, but you also, you know, make a lot of time to talk about the beauty of, of the Southern landscape and certainly you know, the, the ways that it's been used to, to terrorize people or, or as places of refuge, whether it's, you know, swamps and things like that, but also, you know, the joy and, and not in kind of the Walt Disney song of the South, you know, <laughs> black mammy joy, but the, the genuine joy that has been cultivated by black people living in the South. And also the interesting ways that that has intersected with, with white people living in the South. Yeah. I mean, I think American music is Southern music. And it is a music of encounter, right? Where often with people who were, who were mig like migratory in the sense of doing labor, kind of peripatetic, like walk, you know, their movement through, through the Southern landscape and using the imagination to reach for something beautiful. And it's such stunning land in so many ways that I think is inspiring, right? And 
there are so many poems and stories that talk about the sky in Alabama, the, the particular blue, right? I mean, and that is not incidental, right? It is, you know, and so, and so I, I think that that's, an, I think it's important because when you have a people in place and place that are, is so subject to stereotype or shorthands, you forget the fullness of humanity that exists everywhere, right? And this is part of, so I want to unfreeze the mythology because I want to tell a truer story about the country, but I also want to want the book to be a testament to the fullness of humanity in the South that I have felt an, an exile is so often is neglected. It's as though it, it doesn't exist even. There's a way in which it's infuriating, but it's also devastating to me. You talk about, you know, watching Southern sitcoms growing up. I'm, I'm sure that I'm missing some, but there, there haven't been many sitcoms that depict Black Southern life until, you know, as far as I know, the, the new Wonder Years reboot, which takes place in, in Montgomery, Alabama. And you talk about, you know, seeing, I guess, at least some form of yourself and culture, even in shows like The Dukes of Hazard. Tell us about that. I mean, just, you know, Dukes of Hazard, Hee Haw, Beverly Hill, Bill, at least, you know, I mean, you know, that's Ozark, but still, right? And it's, there's a, um, it's a sense of like the humor, the way, the ease of like, you know, laughing at oneself to sort of that kind of like home-like, but also I think a kind of virtuosity and performance, right? Like with, you know, music and and play acting and all those sorts of things. And so it was, it offered something because all of the black sitcoms as I came of age were in Northern cities. They were told stories of people migrating to a one. I thought that was, you know, I, I wasn't cognizant of it then, but it's just interesting in retrospect. So I got one window, but there was something that was also really meaningful in, um, in, in that depiction. And now Reality shows are where you get, I think, the most, you know, Southern culture on television. Southerners rule reality show culture. And it's because of the storytelling. And it's because of the, you know, it's so interesting because people always, it's people like will say, okay, Southerners are conservative and narrow, but then also Southerners are idiosyncratic. And those, the, you know, like in some states, those are intention, but the reality that, that both can be true the kind of conservatism and the space for people to be um, unconventional, different, and, and the way that people can stay in community in a wide range of ways, both creatively, but also in terms of living with mental illness and disability. There's a lot of accommodation of difference in community. Um, and so, yeah, so I watch reality shows in part to get, do the same thing, to hear you know, to hear the, the, the cadence of, of speech, to hear the good storytelling, to hear people talk about things that are familiar to me. You know, what is maybe the biggest thing that surprised you and changed the way that you view the South while putting together this book? I mean, without question, the biggest thing was to, to really take seriously the Upper South. So that's one piece. And then the other piece was the Bahamas, uh, because, you know, like at first I was like, oh, this is and I actually, I was watching an episode of The Jeffersons since we were just talking about TV. Roxy Rocker, the, the actress who played Helen, who is Lenny Kravitz's mom, is telling a story in the episode about having fixed uh, grits for breakfast. And she was Bahamian. And I said, oh, before I started writing, I'd have probably thought, oh, this was, she was playing an African-American woman. But then, you know, now that I've 
you know, did this journey. It's in no Bahamian secrets because a third of their ancestry is in South Carolina. And so these like moments where I could see the threads of connection were really just so exciting because it's like the beginning to me of a different way of telling the story of the country, right? Like for me, the book is an opening in some with that regard, but there's so much more to do, you know, to understand those threads of connection. And then, you know, we'll end where we began on this idea of, of the ancestral home. I'm a new father, I have a four month old son, and I've been trying to wrestle with the idea of, you know, what it means to raise a white boy in the South, in Alabama, in the 21st century. And, you know, that legacy and the legacy that might not be taught to him in, in schools here, uh, you know. So what are some other resources that you would point our listeners to, that you would point me to, for better understanding the South uh, as it is uh, and the way that it's kind of shaped the world and ways that we can move towards that, you know, that culture of, of truth and respect that you, you were talking about? Books like I have a discussion of Bob Zellner's The Wrong Side of Murder Creek about, you know, being a white Alabaman who joined the movement. There's works like that. But I also think for me, here's this sort of big challenge or maybe way to reframe the way folks are talking about this. Right. So, you know, there's been bills introduced like in Florida about worrying about white kids feeling uncomfortable in school if there's this discussion of race and so preventing them from it. But I also think there's just this wonderful prospect of expanding the moral imagination of all of our children with an honest confrontation with history, right? Like that hearing, you know, that actually being deliberate about sharing stories of the past fully and also acknowledging that the tensions of the past are present today gives them a, the prospect of imagining themselves as heroic figures, right? Who can move into their futures having really important work to do. <laughs> you know, for, 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 to correct history. I mean, I always think about this. This is when I'm teaching students and with my own children, be better than us. Well, thank you so much for your time, Imani. It was a real pleasure to talk to you and everybody go pick up a copy of South to America. Uh, is there a specific bookstore you'd like to rec recommend people? Oh, well, you know, I love Cheris books in Atlanta, but really any bookstore, bookshop, find your local bookstore through bookshop.org. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you take good care. And that's our show, folks. A huge thank you to Imani Perry for taking the time to speak with us and for putting together such a deep and thoughtful analysis of the South. I highly recommend you pick up a copy of South to America from your favorite local bookstore. And Dr. Perry also writes a weekly newsletter for The Atlantic called Unsettled Territory that you should subscribe to as well. And of course, while you're at it, go ahead and sign up for our newsletter, The Conversation, at ReckonSouth.com newsletters. We go deeper on topics like this every week. The Reckon Interview is executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. It's edited by Kanika Codrington and the great team over at Edit Audio. Next week, we're going to hear from the Oscar nominee and beloved actress Anjanou Ellis and from director Christine Swanson about their efforts to get a feature film produced about Mississippi icon Fannie Lou Hamer. You won't want to miss it, so go ahead and subscribe to our show right now if you haven't already. And while you're at it, leave us a five-star review and share the show with your friends so we can keep on growing the Reckon Interview community. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with me.